how many of you in this very moment would be willing freely on your own desire to be stripped of every perceived material item left destitute to become less attractive physically be beaten to an absolute pulp and then die a violent death for many people who hate you how many of you would be willing to do that right now I don't see any hands I wouldn't really muster that up on my own. I wouldn't really dream that up. I wouldn't really be excited about that. But you see, Christ was. He was. And the Bible says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Knowing that he was about to be hoisted up and hammered into a piece of wood that he himself spoke into existence. He looked at it and he said, this is joy. This is great joy that I can accomplish my purposes, that I can accomplish my will, that I can save people who are in desperate need of a Savior. And that as I move on their behalf, they will look to me and see that though they hated me, that I loved them, that I cared for them, that I gave up my own life for them, that I descended from heavenly glory in the highest of places with angels ministering to my presence beyond numbers and took on your form and took on your flesh and took on your nature and dealt with everything that you would have to deal with in life so that I might be a better high priest and a more faithful minister to the covenant. Christ Jesus, the Lord, on every one of your behalves, on my behalf, if you belong to Him, if He will draw you to Himself. Bow with me. Father, Lord, we are incapable of approaching the throne of Your grace apart from Christ Jesus. We are incapable, Lord, of setting one foot in front of the other without Your grace and Your mercy. Lord, reveal to us Christ in this message, and God, reveal to us our own hearts. Father, that we might see more of Christ and more of how we need to look like Christ. God, that as You convict, Lord, as You do surgery on our hearts and our souls, God, provide the grace of the Spirit in comfort, in peace, in the joy of understanding that though things sometimes be painful, they are necessary for our good. God, that You would convict hearts and minds and souls in this room. And that You would change us into a people who is about You and about Christ. Lord, it is in Your name we pray in accordance with Your will we ask. Amen. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 15.
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before Me. Two-point sermon. Let's read verse 14 again. John 1.14 And the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, Jesus' glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Point one. The true picture of the old covenant and the fulfillment of God's salvation are realized in the God-man, Jesus Christ. The true picture of the old covenant and the fulfillment of God's salvation are realized in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now this act, the incarnation, that God would literally uh, descend, that He would condescend, that He would come down from His heavenly glory and enter into our experience is one of the most amazing biblical truths that I could ever share with you. Why? Because if that did not happen, guess what there would not be? Salvation. It would not exist. We see such a, a condescension, such a willful humility in a massive movement of God high and lifted up to enter into our condition and to come and literally walk amongst us on His own behalf to glorify Himself in the salvation of sinners through the demonstration of His own mighty power. We cannot begin to wrap our heads around this, can we? We cannot begin to fathom this truth, can we? I have two quotes from Calvin. The first one being, when when God literally has to speak to us, think about the amount of condescension that there is. Not that there's condescension in that He is looking at us and looking and thinking, oh, those, you know, these just foolish little children. Not that type of condescension, but that literally the God of the universe who operates in the most majestic glory in the mightiest of power, in the most appropriate and intense amount of holiness, chooses to even speak to us in words that we can understand. And so Calvin equates it to this, that literally that would be like a mother or a father speaking to a baby in baby words. Meeting them on a level where they could even understand what was being said. And what does that show on behalf of the mother or father? A love for that child. And a heart for that child. Speaking of how the Word became flesh, again this is Calvin, quote, the word flesh expresses the meaning of the evangelist more forcibly than if he had said that Christ was made man. He intended to show what a mean and despicable condition the Son of God on our account descended from the height of His heavenly glory. When Scripture speaks of man contemptuously, it calls him flesh. Now though there be so wide a distance between the spiritual glory of the speech of God and the abominable filth of our flesh, yet the Son of God stooped so low as to take upon Himself that flesh subject to so many miseries." End quote. 
I want you to consider your own estate right now, individually, your own life, your own condition, your own place, your own family, your own home, your own 401k, what have you. Consider your condition now. And think about that for a moment. Dwell upon your condition. Dwell upon your estate. How many of you in this very moment would be willing freely on your own desire to be stripped of every perceived material item left destitute, to become less attractive physically, be beaten to an absolute pulp, and then die a violent death for many people who hate you. How many of you would be willing to do that right now? I don't see any hands. I wouldn't really muster that up on my own. I wouldn't really dream that up. I wouldn't really be excited about that. But you see, Christ was. He was. And the Bible says that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. Knowing that He was about to be hoisted up and hammered into a piece of wood that he himself spoke into existence, he looked at it and he said, this is joy. This is great joy that I can accomplish my purposes, that I can accomplish my will, that I can save people who are in desperate need of a Savior. And that as I move on their behalf, they will look to me and see that though they hated me, that I loved them. That I cared for them. That I gave up my own life for them. That I descended from heavenly glory in the highest of places with angels ministering to my presence beyond numbers and took on your form and took on your flesh and took on your nature and dealt with everything that you would have to deal with in life so that I might be a better high priest and a more faithful minister to the covenant. Christ Jesus. The Lord. On every one of your behalfs. On my behalf. If you belong to Him. If He will draw you to Himself. I want you to understand this was not plan B. This was not 2.0. It wasn't even a reaction to man's sinfulness. Let me say that again. It was not a reaction to man's sinfulness. Why? This plan was drawn up before the foundation of the earth was laid and it was inhabited by man. Think about that for a second. That God, sovereign and free from sin, would allow sin to enter the world. Not that He Himself created it, but that He purposed for that sin to enter the world in order to show more of Himself. I've said this before, but when you look up at the sky in the daytime, where'd the stars go? Stealing uh, an analogy from Paul Washer, he says, it's not like some cosmic giant came and grabbed all the stars, put them in a basket, and walked away with them during the daytime. No. You see, they're washed out by the light. 
They're washed out by the daily grind. They're washed out because we're not really paying attention to the sky outside of the sun during the daytime. But when do you see the stars? When do you see them? When every single one of those stars is contrasted by the thick pitch blackness of a night sky. That is a small glimmer of what God's glory is like as He puts the backdrop of humanity behind Him. That in the midst of all the wickedness here, that Christ would enter into our condition and be seen in the backdrop of sin. That if there was no sin, and I want you to consider this, there would be no ability for God to extend His mercy or His salvation if there was no sin. When it is said He dwelt among us, and we look at the root of that Greek word, it literally means that He tabernacled amongst us or He pitched a tent amongst us. His tabernacle. Think about literally what that was in Exodus. It was a place of meeting with His people. A place of meeting with His lost, wandering, starving children. And we see the glimmers and pictures of this in the Old Testament. In Exodus 40, verses 34-35. through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And if we look at the Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, same word. Same word that we're using with Christ here in John. His tent. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now I want you to think about this uh, just for a second positionally. After the tabernacle is built, where does God primarily manifest His glory to the Israelites? In the tabernacle. It's interesting, right? Just think locality. Where was it located inside of the camp? Smack dab in the middle. Right in the middle, in the midst, in the center, in the epicenter of His people, God pitched His tent. Old Testament tabernacle. It sounds a lot like Christ with humanity, doesn't it? A lot like it. Sounds a lot like the Holy Spirit indwelling Christians, doesn't it? A lot like it. Of living inside of them. Of literally living inside of them. Of taking up residence. Of pitching His tent. Of establishing His claim on them. By putting Himself in the midst of them. And calling them His people. Or do you see, at least I hope, the beautiful continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Within that text there, as we look at Exodus and now we're speaking of, of this account of John, we see the full manifestation of God in Christ Jesus who took upon Himself human flesh. Ah, there's the picture. Why? Primarily in order to accomplish His eternal purposes, but also to save sinners. To have both the sympathy and the empathy towards the human condition. So read with me in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery, excuse me, slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is why it was necessary for He, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, to enter into the human condition. Look at the last line. Bring, bring Hebrews 2.17 back up, please. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. And we've talked about that word propitiation a number of times, but literally to satisfy the wrath of God against sin and against sinners. And Christ Jesus was the one who did that. That's the Gospel. That is the Gospel. There is salvation in no other There is salvation in no other system, in no other work, in no other way, in no other place, in no other time. There is only salvation in Christ Jesus. There is no salvation for the Jew who does not convert. There is no salvation for the faithful Buddhist, the Japanese adherent to Shintoism, any tribal religion you might find in the jungles of South America or Africa. There is not salvation in atheism, in humanism, in worldly thought, in an I don't care attitude, or politics. And we could go on and on and on and on. Because guess what every single one of those requires of you? Guess what every single one of those requires of you in order for salvation? That your good works outweigh your bad works. That's what every single one of those things requires for your salvation. And guess what the Bible says? You don't have any good works. There is no one good, no, not one. There was no one who seeks after me, no, not one. Psalm 14, Psalm 51, and Romans 3. In fact, the Bible says that all of our good works are but filthy rags, apart from Christ and apart from the righteousness of Christ. That we can't do anything to save ourselves apart from Christ Jesus, which takes man's soapbox, rips it out from under his feet, and says, look, what do you have? You got nothing. You have absolutely nothing. You were backbiting, sinful haters of God. Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, shows up and moves on your behalf and draws you into a relationship with Him. That is both gracious and merciful. Both of those things are true. That's the Gospel. The journey for salvation, we could look at uh, Matthew 5, for example, with the Beatitudes. The journey for salvation is not by becoming higher, It is like the condescension of Christ. It is like the incarnation of Christ. It is about becoming lower. (laughs) 
By understanding our spiritual condition before God, our own lowliness, our own sinfulness, our own inability to earn grace, our own, our own inability to even understand grace, and our inability to see and to understand the embodiment of truth Himself, Jesus Christ. We read later in John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, there it is. There's the, the creator, the giver, the sustainer, the embodiment of the source of absolute and perfect truth. The beautiful picture of grace, Christ Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, said Jesus. Wildly contradictory to the American gospel. Wildly. Oh, you're out there fishing? Probably breaking a ton of laws as you're doing it? Come on, James and John. Come on, Peter and Andrew. Oh, you're actively bilking um, your own people as you work for a pagan government that's also bilking our people uh, that's actually set up a system whereby the senators can purchase the right to uh, overtax us. And guess what? Hey, buddy. Matthew, Levi, tax collector. Little Moki would be his position in that tax collecting scheme. Little Moki, every dime that you get over what we require of you, you put into your own pocket. What did Jesus say? Get up and follow me. What did he do? Was he actively in the synagogue praising the Lord? No, he was actively extorting his own people. What did he do? He got up and he followed Jesus. Oh, Simon the Zealot, also known as the Daggerman, because they like to keep daggers in their cloaks by which they might assassinate Roman politicians or Roman soldiers at night. Oh, Simon? Likely a murderer? Follow me. So what did he do? He put down the zealot thing and he picked up the Jesus thing. I could keep going. Abraham, living in the pagan land of Ur. Hey, pack up everything, including everything, and move your entire family to where I tell you. And it's going to be really poopy along the way. What did he do? He got up and he followed him. Hmm. Saul, who later became Paul, violently persecuting the church, holding the coats of the first people who stoned the first martyr. On his way to Damascus with letters and hands to likely try and kill, imprison, and destroy more Christians. Oh, wasn't in a synagogue, was he? Wasn't actually looking to the Christ, was he? No, and Christ showed up and kicked him in the face, spiritually speaking, and said, guess what? I have appointed you to do this. You're going to follow me. Ah. Ah. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. John chapter 6. Let's continue on in our sermon. John 1.15 is our last verse. John testified about him, and this would be uh, the baptizer, John the baptizer, not John uh, the, the, the beloved disciple or John the revelator who wrote John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation. But this is John the baptizer speaking. John testified about him and cried out saying, quote, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. End quote. Point two. 
be unashamed in the truth that Christ is before all things. To Him be all power, glory, and dominion. So here we have the greatest of men. And this is the biblical proclamation that literally there was not anyone greater born of men than John the Baptist. So we have the greatest of all men proclaiming that there was one higher than even he himself. Who was he? Jesus the Christ. But look at his argumentation. Look at his timeline. He says something very interesting. He says, quote, he existed before me. Ah. Doesn't make sense. Because as, as we... Look at the backdrop for John the Baptist. We understand something very specific in the Gospel account that he was actually six months older than Jesus. That his mother, Elizabeth, had been pregnant for six months when Mary found out that she was pregnant with Jesus. He was born before Christ. He was drawing physical breath before Christ, yet the baptizer says that he, Christ, is a higher rank than himself. And so if you look at any ancient Near East East culture, or any time I've gone to the Middle East in the past decade, what do you see? You see the fact that there is a clear-cut distinction between people based on their age. Why? Because those cultures are very, very big on eldership, on their elders, on respecting those who are above them. And so for him to say that literally this guy who's three months younger than me has a higher rank than I is odd considering both of them were practically destitute and had nothing. Hmm. Allow me to explain by simply quoting the words of Christ Himself. Now this, this won't be on your screen, but listen to John chapter 8, verse 56 and 59 through 59. This is Jesus' word, red, red letter words. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, and this is the Jews who weren't all about Jesus, quote, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out out of the temple. Now let me just chronologically, Abraham was born nearly 2,000 years before Christ, and Christ said before he, before Abraham existed, I am. Now notice the language as well. For us who speak English, that would be grammatically incorrect. Hmm. We would say something like this. Well, I, I lived then. I was around then. I was born then. Uh, past tense, past tense, past tense. Yet God created time itself. So step back from our very limited perspective on linear time and understand that that is literally a construct of God. That God created time itself and so He is above time. God is not constrained by time in any way, that he exists apart from time. Now he can choose to operate within our history as he has done, as the biblical uh, record gives us notice. But he existed before time and before space and before any idea of nothingness could even be contemplated. His superiority is absolutely 100% without question. Matthew 3, verse 11. As for me... I, John the Baptist, baptize you with water for repentance, but He, Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I. And I, John the Baptist, am not fit to remove His, Jesus' sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John 1.27 It is He who comes after me 
the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In John 1, verse 30. This is He on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Here it is again in John 8.58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now what should this produce in us? What should this truth ruminate inside of us? Awe, wonder, attention, attraction, uh, let's say a sense of our own lowliness in comparison to Christ. And it should draw out of us a deep understanding and knowledge of His perfections. What's the bait and switch? Jesus was just a good teacher. He was just a good moral agent. He was just kind of like a, a, a Gandhi in a different time, in a different name. No, He wasn't. He was God. Strip the deity away from Jesus Christ and you strip salvation away from Christianity. Make Jesus just a man, then guess what we have the ability to do? Say, well, He was fallible. Probably a sinner. I'm better than He is. That's a really weak gospel. That's a really pathetic gospel. That's a really empty, lifeless, dead gospel. But, when we look at the Bible, we see that He is God. That He was God and that He will continue to be God. That everything is upheld and governed by Him. That He is the ultimate potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And as Christians, we should rejoice greatly that He is within us. At least through the Holy Spirit. Though we know that He is seated now at the right hand of the throne of Father, and He is waiting for the day in which He might return on a white war horse to judge the nations. Revelation chapter 19.11 We should rejoice greatly that He came and condescended, that He crushed the expectations of the day and fully manifested the radiance of God on earth. Now let us rejoice let us find great joy and comfort in the truth of His deity. I want to scream that in the streets. I literally, if I could do it and not be arrested, I would grab people and shake them and say, Jesus is real. He's real. And so many people want to drag His name through the mud by professing to be Christians and not acting like it. We hate that, don't we? No, we don't. No. Christians are the only ones who can get away with it. But if you work for McDonald's and you try and make Burger King burgers, guess what? Even McDonald's has a standard. But dear goodness, we better not have a standard in the church. We better not look like Christ or at least not tell people that they might not look like Christ because that might hurt their feelings and then that would mean that we're unloving. That's the, the dumbest argument I've ever heard in my life. Or to quote Proverbs, that's a really stupid argument because Proverbs use the word stupid. Think about that for a second. How many of us, if our physical life depended on it, and a doctor said, hey, by the way, you keep eating like that, you're going to die. Your heart's going to poop out on you. You're going to have a stroke. Your blood pressure is just going to cause your heart to explode. And they say, guess what? You need to change doing some things that you've been doing. You need to eat differently. You need to exercise a little bit. And you need to stop smoking and, and, and doing X, Y, and Z. Huh. What would you do if it pertained to your physical life? Ah, doctor, you don't love me. You don't care about me. <sighs> so arrogant. So uneducated. So simple-minded. Don't care about our community. 
You don't even care about me. But what does that doctor do? He just hangs his head and says, I know the truth. And I knew that you'd probably get upset with me for telling you this truth, but I told you because your life depends on it. And I will literally watch you throw your life away if you continue to live the way that you're living. And what do people do? They listen to the doctor. What do they do to the pastor? Castigate him. Malign him. Slander him. Abuse him. What do they do with the faithful Christian? Push them off. Don't allow them in the, the, little, the little cool kids click at work or at school. They say, look at you. So self-righteous. So high and mighty. Look at you. How could you speak down to me? I'm not speaking down to you, friend. I am speaking to you out of the brokenness of my heart, understanding that there is nothing that I can do to save myself. Yet I have a truth that when it sinks in, if it sinks in, will change everything in your entire life. Now I'm not promising health, wealth, and happiness. That's not what I'm promising, but I promise you it will change everything in your life and that you will look exponentially different at what it is to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. What does the world want you to do? Hate that person. Hate that Christian. Hate that Christ. I'm going to read this again. We talked about in the last sermon about a bunch of people who followed Jesus trying to throw him off a cliff because they didn't like what he said. I'm going to read you John 8, 56-59 again. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see me in my day. Red letter words, Jesus Christ, direct quote. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let me tell you, those weren't pebbles. They don't pick up pebbles to stone somebody. And let me explain to you more or less how they stone people. They dig a pit, a small pit up to about the waist, and then they fill it in with dirt. They tie their hands behind their back. And then people encircle them with large rocks, and they throw them at those people in the head until they die. They weren't just picking up rocks to throw at Jesus. They wanted to execute Him on the spot. Why? Because He spoke the truth. Because the darkness hates the light because the darkness cannot comprehend the light. But guess what? The darkness can't overcome the light. And so even though they eventually wound up killing Christ, the first time that was publicly proclaimed, 3,000 men were added to the church after Peter threw every single one of them under the bus and said, you, by the hands of sinful men, killed Christ and that was in accordance with the will of God, the predetermined and predestined plan of God that He would use you, wicked, evil, sinful humanity, to kill His own Son. And then He would use that same Son to save every one of you. Hmm. There's the Gospel. Let us find the greatest of joy and comfort in the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ and understand that Christ is God. He's salvation. Listen to His name. Break His name down in, in, in Hebrew. His name, Jesus, is literally Yeshua. Yah-shua. Yahweh, salvation or saves. God saves was His literal name. 
That's his literal name. He is salvation. So I would ask that every one of you who loves Christ to cast your fear and your doubt and your life on the Christ. To cast your political worry and your fears of this virus which is so wildly insignificant in light of our King on our King. Corona in politics will not stop Jesus. I can't even stall him out. I want to say this, newsflash, public service announcement, Jesus is in control of everything. Otherwise, you don't serve a sovereign God. He's above everything. And he laughs at kings and presidents and chancellors and emperors because he's God. He's sovereign. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the condescension of Christ. We thank you for what you have done in Christ, through Christ. God, I pray for a holy terror to fall upon this place, Lord, with the realization that you are God, because we know that Psalms and Proverbs both clearly indicate that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God, that we would have a holy fear of you out of the love that we have for you because we understand that you are so other than, you are so much bigger than our imaginations or our comprehension, God, that you are so much greater and grander and more glorious and more wonderful than anything. And let that fear of you, which is driven by a knowledge of you, be demonstrated in the fruits that we are about to bear. And that, Lord, if we bring anything to the table, God, that it be of Christian fruit and that we have Scripture to back up everything that we are about to say. Lord, that You would hold everyone here accountable for the words that proceed from their mouth. And by the words that proceed from their mouth, Lord, we would see their fruit. God, you are so good, and we love you. We pray for your peace. We pray for your hand upon us. We pray that you would be with us, Lord. It is in your name we pray, and according to your will we ask. Amen.